It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. This week we're talking about national parks. 70 years ago, in 1949, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act was passed, which enabled the creation of protected areas to conserve and enhance the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage. The first national park, the Peak District, was designated in 1951 and since then 14 more have been created in Great Britain. But are they delivering on their promise? The Campaign for National Parks has done some research that shows precious wildlife sites in national parks are not doing very well. For example, 75% of national park sites of special scientific interest are in unfavourable condition. This spring, the Campaign for National Parks launched its Fight Back for Nature campaign to urge the government to reverse this decline. I spoke to Andrew Hall from the organisation to find out just what's wrong with our flagship protected areas. Before we start, Andrew, could you tell me a bit about what the Campaign for National Parks is? I I believe it's a charity, is that right? Yeah, so since 1936, actually, so for over 80 years, we've been working to protect and improve the national parks. So we were part of the original campaign to actually set up the national parks, which obviously was successful in doing so. And since then, we've been working to protect them. So from for example, developments, we were working to improve accessibility to national parks so that everyone can enjoy them. And we've also been working to improve them. And that's part of this uh, piece of work. We were looking to improve the wildlife in national parks. We think that's a really important part of why people love and enjoy the national parks. And frankly, they're not currently bucking the trends. And that has to change. So when you say that, um, bucking the trends, the trends are 
down for wildlife. I mean, we, we're, those of us who work in the countryside milieu, we, we kind of know that things are bad. Yeah, yeah. So there's massive declines in, in nature um, across the board in the countryside, but also globally uh, and national parks, which really should be an exemplar for wildlife, an exemplar of nature conservation. That's how we um, look at it. Really aren't booking those trends. They're seeing the same sorts of decline as we can see elsewhere. Um, so what we're really calling for is a step change in the way we go about nature conservation in the national parks. They're conserved for this very reason, to conserve and enhance nature and wildlife and reasons people enjoy being out in the countryside. Um, but when they're not booking those kind of trends, when they're seeing the same decline, so something seriously has to change. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because our readers and listeners, in fact, we've just done a, a special issue on national parks because it's the, is it the 70th year since the, the, the legislation was passed, the Act of Parliament uh, to create national parks? People would assume that they are protected areas and that wildlife as well as the historic landscape and 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 the natural beauty is protected but um so what what's what's gone wrong why why aren't uh, national parks uh, uh, yeah why why it's so bad so from the last kind of 70 years in fact we've seen massive changes in the way we go about farming the land for our food massive changes in the intensity of the way we manage lands and that's had a real knock on effect on the wildlife not just here in, in our countryside, but across the world as well. And that's exacerbated by issues such as the introduction of invasive species, uh, by climate change, and by illegal wildlife persecution as well. So there's all these issues compounding together that's really creating um, a, a storm of decline in our countryside. So that's really what's happened over the past decade and, and what needs to change. I think a lot of people might think that national parks are owned by the national park authorities, but they're not, are they? They're largely privately owned. And, it's, and, and how does that compound or, or create a problem? Well, it's an interesting challenge. So, for example, 95% of the Yorkshire Dales National Park is about privately owned. Uh, but those private owners actually represent a, quite a diverse range of, of groups and people from big organisations such as the National Trust down to really small holders and, and small community groups as well. Um, so it is a very interesting challenge. I think for us, it's quite an exciting time to be part of the conversation around nature uh, conservation in this country because we're having to reevaluate the way we go about farming uh, due to our exit from the European Union. And as part of that, we want to see um, payments towards farmers that really incentivize environmental good and environmental uh, action that sees natural parks really benefit and thrive. Um, but working with those different partners, you know, there's only so much that local authorities and national park authorities can do but there's a lot that for example Westminster and government can do. So uh, just to be clear to our readers and listeners before we go into some more detail about those sort of subsidies and things um, you're obviously not the national park authorities how do you work so they're 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 a sort of state body aren't they so they they exist to run the national parks in whatever way they can, relatively limited budgets, I think. But how do you fit in with that then, with the charity campaign for national parks? Yeah, so so we're an independent charity and uh, we campaign for the national parks themselves. So the national park authorities govern and administer the parks. They have to set out a management plan for the parks. And part of our research is actually telling the national park authorities, look, 
you need to raise your ambitions for wildlife in these plans because at the moment, you know, it, it's not doing good enough. You have these ambitions, there's ambitions in North York Moors, for example, to improve Merlin populations or there are um, ambitions to introduce more people to wildlife across various parks. But actually, we need much more explicit goals that look at the whole restoration of whole landscapes, not just small-scale conservation. And National Park Authorities really need support from the government to be able to do that but they have to start with improving the ambitions in their own plans to start with and so the essence here is to convince landowners so farmers and other bodies Mm. corporations whoever owns the land to utilize that land in a more wildlife friendly environmentally friendly way Um, and you're saying through the the best way to do that is through through money through how they're paid subsidies Um, is that, how effective is that argument to people who've been farming the land, particularly some of the sort of multi-generational farming families yeah. that I've come across when exploring yeah. the countryside? How, how easy is it to, to say, uh, we're going to pay you to, to, to farm wildlife instead of farming uh, sheep or whatever? Yeah. Well, it's definitely a challenge, you know, and there's no shirking that at all. But what I think is really um, interesting is is alongside this kind of financial incentivization um, for environmental good, there also needs to be a rebuilding of trust in the institutions that deliver those payments. You know, I've taught, uh, spoken to landowners and farmers in, in the national parks and, and elsewhere, and they've been let down time and time and again by political instability and a lack of long-term guarantees. When we're talking about environmental changes and environmental goods, you need those kind of long-term changes just to see a project through, frankly. And actually, when they enroll in an environmental management scheme, for example, and then they're let down by funding further down the line, then that erodes their trust. And for a long time, that's really been the case. So there needs to be a rebuilding of trust in those kind of institutions that will enable uh, land managers and farmers to really enact those environmental goods we want to see. So that definitely has to be part of the conversation, as well as those payments for public goods in the first place. So so there's people are prepared to commit, those farmers who are prepared to commit are finding they're being let down because... Obviously, it's a many-year investment. Some of this stuff, and you need to. Yeah, know that I think gonna... a lot of a lot of landowners, as I said before, they're actually quite a diverse bunch, and a lot of them see themselves as custodians of the national park landscapes, as custodians of these fantastically beautiful, world-famous landscapes. Uh, but they can't enact the change that they want to see because they're not being supported uh, by government and, and bodies down the line. So we really want to see, for example, the National Park Authorities have more power to deliver those kind of agricultural environmental schemes that will hopefully boost the landscape because a lot of those landowners want to see the national parks thrive. That's, that's good to hear. So there's, do you think there's a willing audience there among the people who really, I mean, matter? I suppose the people who actually own the yeah. land. Yeah, um, I think I, I think there's more willing audience than some people realise, um, and I sometimes think the tone of debate actually doesn't help these things and kind of entrenches division and entrenches resistance among landowners. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there are a lot of these debates. I mean, you mentioned persecution of of raptors. Mm. Um, which I think is quite bad in the Peak District in particular. Um, um, but that has become a very entrenched debate. How, as a charity, do you go about trying to bring 
really quite vehemently opposing views and 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 as you say completely dug in now some of these people how do you, how do you try to start to to unravel that and make and bring people together well i think it's a really quite exciting time to to be doing that and i think a lot of those conversations are actually being had when we're trying to create these um public good for uh, public money for public good schemes and, and pay kind of landowners for for environmental goods so we're having to come around the same table to kind of have those I think for us we're very careful about the language we use um, because we want and we know we have to bring as many people with us as possible because national parks you know they're so complex you've got the landowners you've got the 100 million visitors that visit the national parks uh, every year you've got the national park authorities you've got government so these are incredibly complex designated landscapes and you cannot shut out part of the uh, debate at all um are there particular national parks which you think are um, let's be positive. Um, are, are examples of good practice where you think there's been some positive strides made to to Im- involve all the oh, I hate the word stakeholders, but you know the the, the, yeah. the landowners and the visitors because we forget sometimes that there are also millions of visitors going to these national parks. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, where where would you suggest that you know, that this is a good example of it happening already? Yeah. Well, there's lots of good examples of um, really good wildlife conservation going on across all the parks. But if we have to bring out some examples, I think there's a really positive movement around cluster farms in the South Downs, for example, where different farms are working basically in a cooperative to create environmental goods. Um, And that seems to be having really positive effects and farmers are sharing their uh, knowledge with each other, sharing best practice, really to see and enhance the landscape for themselves. Um, so I think that's a really positive example. Um, I think the, all the national parks are very different. So the challenges in the South Downs, for example, are very different from the challenges in the Lake District. And the Lake District challenges are very different from the New Forest. In the New Forest, you've got um, the commoning system, which is also very productive for, for landscape and, and land uh, commoners, really, that are working together to create this rich mosaic and maintain the mosaic of habitats in the new forest and create such a rich environment for wildlife down there. You talked in your literature about 13 national parks. So are you not involved with the Scottish national parks? Is that a separate? No, so, so we've, been involved, we've been involved since England and Wales since the 1949 legislation, which is celebrating the 70th anniversary, but that doesn't cover Scotland, so I we see. don't cover Scotland. Right. But you include in your number Norfolk Broads. Is that yeah. the, oh, the Broads National Park? Now, that's uh, really interesting because um, the Norfolk Broads made it into a shortlist of our National Park of the Year category in our annual mm-hmm. awards in 2018. And we had a huge amount of correspondence from from people saying that the Norfolk Broads wasn't a national park. And very vehement, mm-hmm. actually, quite angry. And I had quite a lot of, uh, let's say, <laughs> harshly worded emails saying mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that the Broads wasn't a national park. Uh, it's... It opened up a bit of a debate. Um, I was quite happy to continue as a, keeping it as a national park, and I'm glad that <laughs> what you're saying backs this up. But can yeah. you clarify its position? Yeah, so it's it's 
been able to talk about it as a national park equivalent and um, there is legislation which means you can talk about the boards as a national park. It is slightly different and anyone who's gone to the boards knows what a different character it is from the rest of the national parks. And a lot of that is to do with um, rights to the waterways and maintaining the waterways for boats. And that's the kind of difference between it and the other national parks and why it was designated a lot later than most of them. Well, that's yes. I think a lot of the um, correspondence came from boat owners who were concerned yes. that their rights of navigation would be curtailed. Yes. But, uh, but I, I was surprised by the vehemence, and I thought that if you loved uh, the landscape, mm. that you would want it protected in that way. However, it was one of these things, and and I think we have clarity on this that Norfolk Broads is a, is a national park, and we'll continue to refer to that in in the magazine. You are making, hoping to make some changes, and hoping your report yep. will create some momentum. Um, what can people who, because this is largely targeted at people who live in national parks or manage national parks, what mm. about most of us who are visitors? I mean, I, I mm. actually do live in Brecon Beacons National Park, but um, many of our readers will not they they will visit national parks yeah beautiful places is there is there anything that they can do to help yeah absolutely so we would encourage everyone firstly to get out and enjoy the national parks because if you don't um you know it's silly not to they're fantastic free resources but be very responsible when you do so we're also campaigning for example to reduce the amount of private cars in the national parks and and enhance public transport options because National parks are choking, frankly, some parts of our national parks during holiday uh, seasons in particular, and that's really damaging for the landscape. Uh, so we would encourage everyone to try and take alternatives to the private car to national parks. We realise that's difficult in some places to really represent good behaviour in the national parks. You know, follow signs where it says keep your dogs on lead because there's ground nesting birds, for example, or, um, you know, keep your litter with you. But there's other things as well. Even if you're just a visitor in the national park, you can still get involved in the fantastic volunteer schemes that are going on across the national parks that are making huge differences. In Snowdonia, there's a fantastic project called Helping Hands, which is making a massive difference to Snowdonia National Park. And I know that's mostly the case across all the national parks as well. So there there are lots of ways that people could Mm. volunteer their time and energy to help out on projects within national parks uh, and sort of immerse yeah. yourself, get to know, get to know people, so that rather than just being a visitor, you could perhaps have a. I mean, do, do, are things like working holidays in national parks, repairing footpaths, those sort of things. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, They're always positive. looking for volunteers for you know restoring footpaths to. Um, managing invasive species, uh, to putting up birds' nests, or just talking to other visitors about the wildlife they can see there. Um, and that research has shown that's got such a positive effect on your own mental health. And this is uh, Mental Health Awareness Week. And volunteering in the parks, just getting out, frankly, into the parks and the countryside can have such a positive boost uh, to your well-being. So what would your vision then for the next five to ten years, what would you hope to see if things go sort of roughly to plan? Yeah, so I think um, we'll be watching, for example, the environment bills and the agriculture bills pass through Parliament with a very keen eye. We're very keen that they take into consideration uh, the special qualities of national parks and, and how national parks can 
um, implement the kind of outcomes of those bills. We've also got the Glover Review of national of England's designated landscapes, which has real wide significance for the English national parks, the 10 English national parks. Um, and that's looking at all sorts. That's looking at the uh, wildlife and biodiversity, but it's also looking at accessibility and, and the whole reason they're designated and their protections. And we would really urge Julian Glover and his review panel um, to really take on board these recommendations. Give us an ambition for nature in the national parks, make it more wilder and produce something that's really going to change the game in national parks. People who live in the national park, and I, I did up until very recently, um, d- d- there are some restrictions on things and what you can do with your house, your garden and yeah. extensions and those sort of things. Uh, and that can include converting a barn to make a, a, an office or, mm. or cow. Mm. I, I think in the Yorkshire Dales, they were trying to convert old farms and uh, unused farm buildings into light industrial units. It's very, very difficult to get the planning for mm. those things. How do you feel when people, you know, that's clearly people want to live and make money and, and enhance their mm. lives through you know, the, the things that outside national parks, it's, it's easier to do. Do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with uh, people wanting to, you know, the developments and, and you know, normal life goes on? I think there has to be a balance. You know, the planning protections that national parks have are very important. You know, they're important to preserve the character of the national parks. They're important to conserve the quality of the landscape and the aesthetic appeal of the landscape. And uh, that's why they have these protections, these planning protections, and they're incredibly important. Uh, But on the other hand, we do have to have vibrant, sustainable rural communities, and that includes attracting uh, young people to the National Park, for example, and giving people affordable places to live in the National Parks. And that is a real challenge. But uh, the National Park authorities who have those kind of planning powers hopefully take these into consideration. Sometimes uh, we disagree with it and we will campaign on that. For example, um, last year we campaigned against zip wires across uh, the Selmere Reservoir in the Lake District uh, because we felt that was massively damaging to the landscape rather than um, rather than enhancing it and the benefits that that might give to the landscape in terms of stimulating the economy uh, were actually outweighed by the damage it would do. We have to protect these. They've been protected for 70 years so that everyone can enjoy. And we can't put those principles at stake by loosening those planning protections. Okay, so where where it fits within the sort of cultural and historic Mm. and and the kind of local need, but perhaps not these bigger landscape scale, I mean, zip-wise would seem to be quite, yeah. quite an imposition on landscapes. And uh, Definitely, definitely. You know, they're, they're, all these national parks have a very distinctive character. We would like to see um, communities that, uh, and developments that enhance that character rather than take away from it. Because that's part of the, um, the Lake District's been an interesting debate when it was made a, a sort of World Heritage Site, is that right? Or, mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, the a lot of what people love are those fells, sheep grazed fells. Uh, but the mm. the wildlife enthusiasts, rewilders, would be saying actually that's pretty damaging for nature. Yeah. So there must be a conflict between people, the, the the love of those traditional lakeland landscapes and yeah. the desire, to, as you say, to create that difference. So you step from you know. Yeah, Southern Cumbria into into the Lakeland, and and you you're expecting something different, but actually, 
a lot of visitors are expecting sort of words worthy in hills and yeah and, uh, well i think there's room for both um, you know, the 10 national parks in England cover about 10% of the land. The three national parks in Wales cover about 20% of the land. Uh, there is space within them to have these core areas of, of that feel relatively wilder and are full mm. of vibrant wildlife, perhaps a bit more remote, a bit more remote. Um, and these areas of kind of traditional um, landscapes. But what we can't have is is a museum. National parks can't be pickled in aspect. They can't stand still. You know, they have to adapt with the times and they have to adapt to the needs we have today. And there are significant environmental needs where the national parks have to step up and, and show some leadership and, and really lead the charge for wildlife, build on the great work they're doing so far and take us that step further. So lead the charge for wildlife, um, a wilder national parks in the future. Sounds exciting. Andrew. It is. It's a very exciting time. Brilliant. Okay, well, best of luck and thank you very much for, for talking to me today. Well, very thought-provoking stuff from Andrew Hall there. You can find out more about all of our national parks in special articles and walks on our website, countryfile.com. And please get in touch to tell me what you think about this issue and any others by emailing editor at countryfile.com. This has been a podcast for BBC Countryfile magazine, produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.